Look, it was terrific. I remember walked into the church and we sat and looked and it was like, everyone was just excited because you looked and thought, wow, we've got two grooms, two sets of grooms and a bridal party waiting. And then all of a sudden we get two brides. When Sean Cosgrove, a notable Australian voiceover artist and radio host, was invited to MC Robbie and Rodney's wedding ceremony, where both brothers would marry two sisters from Macclesfield, he jumped at the opportunity. Knowing the boy's father John, and being an avid racing enthusiast himself, it seemed a perfect marriage, so to speak. The spectacle trickled out of the church and onto the streets of Cranbourne, where bystanders looked on in awe. A pair of young newlyweds, followed by a bridesmaid shower of pink ruffles and perfumed ponytails, it was the 80s after all, stepped out of a horse and carriage and made their way toward their future. This was the beginning of a new chapter. So we had all the same yeah. family and friends. Yeah. And like, it was a big wedding anyway. So yeah. we were only going to be inviting exactly the same friends probably a year later. Yeah. So, you know, that was probably my idea. <laughs> I think I might have put it into your head. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I said you might as well have the two weddings together. I think yeah, so. Yeah. That's Kerry, Sharani's sister, and Rosemary, their mother, discussing the origin story of the double wedding. And then all of a sudden the double bunga came up, the wedding. And, yeah, it was like, yeah, I looked that way, I looked that way. <laughs> you didn't know what to do on the day. I'd never been to a double wedding before. Sean's not alone, obviously. It's not as if double weddings are necessarily common. But it was a wonderful affair. John Griffiths, the father of the grooms, sang a fantastic cover of an Elvis classic. Matthew Hyland, Rodney's best man, told one too many cheeky stories. And Kim Griffiths, the youngest of the Griffiths clan, stood proudly in her flower girl attire, missing her two front teeth at the ripe age of six. It was spectacular, it really was. It was a great day. And then um, the reception afterwards was wonderful. We, we had a ball of that. But it wasn't without its hiccups, that's for sure. As you heard in the last episode, Philip Moore and the rest of the gang had their car breakdown. And in true Melbourne fashion, the weather was unbelievably temperamental. Rainstorms prevented the young couples from having their photos taken. And, well... Kerry nearly married Robbie in a hilarious ring mix-up. Hear her describe the day with as much fervour as if it were yesterday. Oh, it was terrible, Mum. We couldn't have any photos. No photos. That's right, the photos were taken in the back of that. It was blowing a gale. It was terrible. The the trip to the 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 golf club on the horse and carriage was... On the church at near Papa's. They had to go to the golf club on so past where Mum and them used to live. And I was nearly married to Robbie because the Who's ring went... Poor Matty Highland, he had the four rings on the one cushion. Why we did that, I don't know. Because I was married first, so I would be married longer now if I was a divorce. <laughs> that the, I'm going, yeah, that's the one, that's the one. I'm watching him go around the, the no, ring, that? The ring pillows. Right? And I'm going, that's it, that's the one. Shen. So then he took that off and he gave it to Rod... And I've looked as, you know, put your hand out to do all that stuff. I've looked down and gone, oh my God, it's not, it's not my ring. And I've just, and I think the telly had that. Someone had it on. I watched it on video. And I pulled my hand you away. see Kerry going that. <laughs> oh my God. And Sharan, Sharan's just gone. Yeah. It's just, it's just. <laughs> 
The two couples were ready to embark on a brand new chapter, and their wedding signified a brand new union. Rodney was to head to Ireland to further enhance his writing career alongside Kerry, and Robbie and Sharani were to dream up the early stages of Griffith's racing stables as two ambitious 20-somethings. They wanted to be seen, to be noticed. They wanted to stand out from the pack in a way that set them apart, right from the outset. And for anyone who's ever enjoyed watching a horse race, even those largely unfamiliar with the sport, will appreciate the colourful silks that each jockey dons on the day of his or her ride. And Robbie had his sights and inspiration on one particular trainer's colours, Hall of Fame trainer Lee Friedman. He was the uh, number one trainer at the time and uh, I loved his colours with the white sleeves and caps because you could always see them. For an up-and-coming trainer, it was imperative for Robbie to couple his stables with a set of colours that were easy on the eye and able to be seen and appreciated from far away. It was important for him to introduce something unique, notable and undeniably his to the racetrack. But it wasn't always the hot pink and navy blue we've come to know as unmistakable Griffith's trademarks. It actually started off with a lime green and the uh, and the hot pink, and it just it sounded good in theory, but it looked a little bit uh, sickly to be honest. So uh, I didn't like the look of it. But our first winner, Star View, he had the uh, he had the lime green and pink, and then uh, we switched to the navy blue with the hot pink, and that looked a lot better, and it gave us a better. Uh, a better collection of colours and which worked out better for uniforms down the track with the with the navy blue and pink. I love the colours, you know, it just became who we, represented who we were. But before they could start establishing themselves on Australian racetracks, Robbie and Sharani thought what better time in our careers to travel, to see the racing in various international forms. Given that Rodney and Kerry were bracing the cold tracks of Ireland, Robbie and Sharani thought they'd head there for a little while to find out how Europe's racing industry fares comparatively with that of their home country. But before they ventured into icier turf, they thought they'd visit somewhere a little closer to home, at least for Sharani. The two headed to Sri Lanka, a quick stop off, and the experience was like nothing else. A lot of the Sri Lankan um, business people appeared to be racing horses in Australia. Um, we've seen that with a lot of their horses were trained in Australia by Bart Cummings at the time or in England. So through our eyes looking from afar it looked as though there was opportunity um, to possibly meet and, and greet um, Sri Lankan business people and possibly there was an appetite for them to want to invest uh, into Australian bloodstock. It was something of a thorough investigation. Sharani and Robbie had plans of potentially bringing home young jockeys from Sri Lanka back to Australia as part of their up-and-coming apprentice scheme. It had all the ingredients of a rich cross-cultural partnership. Sharani's father, Gary, also had attended to provide Sri Lanka with saddles, bridles and horse feeds. That's when they met Mohan. Uh, Mohan was a friend of my dad's and he trained horses in Sri Lanka. Um, keeping in mind, horses, race horses in Sri Lanka, certainly for the period we were there, were actually 13-hand ponies. So uh, they were trained that way. And I remember going to, not on that specific trip, but going to Naradia and previous trip I made there to ride. And we were to ride work. And the 
to see the boys chasing the ponies with palm leaves while you rode to make them go faster was something else. <laughs> that, that was a different trip, I tell you that. It was, uh, there was some thoroughbreds and some mixed breeds. We were half thoroughbred, half pony. Used to the size and structure and mass of the thoroughbreds back home, Sharani and Robbie couldn't believe their eyes. Well, we're having a really great time here at the Royal Turf Club in Norelia, and we come to the second race of the afternoon, which is the Sukhothadasa Stadium Cup, Class 4, number one, Crimson Quest, being ridden by... Sukhothadasa. We'd been for several months earlier, back then, uh, the method of uh, communication was uh, fax, facsimile. So father-in-law Gary Ellis and myself had been assisting Mohan Delenarol, uh, a family friend, um, uh, with training ideas from Australia. And Mohan had been training this filly, uh, preparing her for the Sri Lankan derby. And she was racing that day in the Blue Ribbon event in the derby. And she was half uh, thoroughbred and uh, half pony. And she ran second that day and um, she was badly interfered with by uh, the winner who come past her and crashed into her and caused some massive interference and i spoke to mohan that day and said geez you know you want to protest mohan she was badly interfered with and uh, so mohan um to his credit he goes in and he protests and his, his advice his uh preparation on the day was he's going to protest on interference over the last 200 metres on advice from his Australian representative who was at the meeting. And uh, next minute, the flag went up, upheld. So we won the derby and we've got the big trophy. The trophy was nearly bigger than the horse. It was massive. And uh, it was a hell of a day. It was absolute unbelievable fun. And we've got the blue ribbon event. We've won the uh, we've won the Salon derby. So here we are up at Neralia in the tea fields and we've won the big, big derby event with second past the post. After a quick and electrifying time in Sri Lanka, the young couple headed back to the airport in a bid to surprise Robbie's brother Rod and Shirani's sister Kerry in Ireland. But Robbie took a little bit of Sri Lanka with him, it seemed. And Robbie came, of course, with, he, had, he had barley belly from Sri Lanka. That's right. So I think he was on the toilet the whole time in Ireland as well. <laughs> Rodney was consigned by Kevin Prendergast as part of a two-year contract. Kevin being a notable trainer who'd gained a wealth of experience essentially doing exactly what he'd offered Rodney in 1949 as a 17-year-old. He'd participated in a five-year stint in Australia and hoped that the international tuition would provide Rodney with a second-to-none advantage in the saddle. Kerry and new husband Rodney had no idea what to expect out of Europe. Kevin had uh, uh, five years experience in Sydney with Morris McCartan many years ago who was number one trainer before Tommy Smith. The training is completely different. Like you're going out and riding a horse for half an hour. Really? <laughs> yeah. But you're just riding... You're oh, it's riding beautiful. You just go out and be... There's a big... Just a big open area. And, and, and in that big open area, there's like a sand track. Right around sand track. No fit, nothing. Like... And you just get onto that and all of a sudden there's, I think there'd be about 20, 20 horses, a string of horses, there's probably about 20 each, each thing, so there's three lots of 20 or whatever it was, maybe more, and just go out and can around there and then go off walking for miles and come back. 
island is affectionately referred to as the land of the horse, given that it's the largest producer of thoroughbreds in Europe and the fourth in the world. This made it an endlessly inspiring country for Rodney and Kerry when it came to picking up the tricks of the trade. Ireland at that time, uh, when Rodney was there, had all the kings and the queens, you know, like it was, it was different uh, altogether. You land in Ireland and Rodney, you know, was winning for Sheik Hamdan, you know, and he's got all these photos of riding for uh, Priscilla Presley and the Beatles, you know, and he's riding for literally kings and queens and it was just a, a, a total different world. Trains will come and you're like walking along the trains are coming and you're on these races. It was a totally different world, as Robbie described, one that was so much more far-reaching than he'd originally anticipated. The two boys from Cranbourne, who'd never been overseas before now, were in their element, and each morning as Robbie braced the cold and appreciated how his brother and sister-in-law were able to adapt to Ireland's customs and routines with grace, he realised just how limitless his own world was. You know, there was some fantastic Group 1 horses and Rodney was uh, contracted to ride for one of the best trainers there was, you know. So it was a totally different world and, uh, and we were very fortunate to experience some great uh, educational uh, time frame that I was there and Rodney got to ride uh, Group 1 winners for Kevin and I was very fortunate I got to ride out uh, at track work and ride these wonderful horses. And so back to Melbourne, Sharani and Robbie went leaving their family in the care of Kevin Prendergast and some delightful Irish friends they'd met along the way. And it wasn't all glitz and glamour back home. Robbie and Sharani were finding their feet and that meant in order to make and save money, they thought to move in with Sharani's family, namely her mother and brother Vaughan, and were able to make rent by doing Vaughan's books. Before and after Ireland, Rodney and Kerry also bunked up at Chevron Avenue in Cranbourne South. They started off outside in a little, it was like a cubby house, and then Max extended. It was nice. Yeah. She all got on well. We we took it in turns to cook, so that was good because we were cooking for a lot of people in the house. A lot of stews and things like that, I think. Lebanese stew, I think Bar contributed yeah. to Lebanese stew, which we all love. I think Bar had one stew today too, didn't Yeah. And then I and think... And I think Heather. Heather, <laughs> yeah. That after the... Vaughan, yeah. Kerry. Yeah. We didn't have any money. We actually had moved into my mother and my brother's house in Cranbourne South. And we lived in a converted cubby house, which became a bungalow. And we had to run for the toilet every night to the pool house. It was, um, it was simple, but it was nice. We thought we were kings. They may not have had any money, but they certainly had equal parts spirit and passion. And Robbie picked up some tips and inspiration from Kevin. He had no intention of letting go, despite lacking in funds and resources. He took immense pride in the few horses he did have, a legacy that's continued on throughout his training career. Well, the best part about Kevin was that just having your horses absolutely peaking at any distance, at any time of the preparation, or particularly first up. They weren't doing that in Australia at that time back in sort of, you know, that year was 1992. When we come back to Australia, we use that to our advantage. Uh, to set, set ourselves up, so especially when we were trying to finance the early part of our career. But who were these horses that Sharani, Robbie and of course Philby had the pleasure of training and who else was involved? Joe Rami uh, was leased 
off Don Brown. Don Brown had a property up um, in the Black Spur. The Black Spur is an expansive and lush landscape of Australian forestry, a gorgeous pocket of the Yarra Ranges, which links the Yarra Valley with the mountain areas around Marysville. Don's son Cliff Brown is a very successful trainer in Singapore and he's been training there for some time and Don had some uh, beautiful land up there and I fell in love with this young horse by compliance and he was a very uh, cheap horse and what I mean by that he, he didn't have a lot of value because his pedigree was, was not flash. I said I like that horse there, he said well you can't buy him. Said, what do you mean you can't buy him? He said well he's only worth $3,000 and I don't want to sell him for that little amount of money, therefore you can't buy him. I looked at him strangely. He said, therefore I'll let you lease him. Okay. And I didn't have any money anyway, so it worked out really good for me. So I leased him. And Don was terrific. He was a really good, good fellow, Don, and he let me lease him. And leases uh, generally go for three years. Anyway, I had him 12 months before I even did the paperwork. So in effect, he basically let me lease him for four years and uh, and gave me the option to buy him at the duration of the lease and when the lease expired he let me buy him for a very affordable price and he, he put a minimal he didn't put a big price on him which was very kind of him and that horse uh, won us a lot of races and uh, he was a terrific horse and he won a lot of races in the Metropolitan he won Country Cups, won Pakenham Cups, he won Flemington Country Cups, he won lots of races and in today's money probably won equivalent to half a million dollars in today's money, you know, so he was a fantastic racehorse and Don was very kind to us and the horse was a fantastic horse and we used to call him the wages horse because every time you needed uh, to pay staff wages and you're awake at night thinking how the hell am I going to pay my staff, I need some money, he was the horse that come through for you every time. Most of Robbie's horses at that stage, and by most I mean a trivial amount, a dozen or so, were acquired in a similar way to that of Gorami. He may have known a person who knew a person. He visited a horse at a farm and so on and so forth. But a huge and exciting part of racing is going to auction. And the young trainer hadn't yet ventured into the sale yard. And when he did, it was an experience like no other. It was actually quite intimidating uh, being a buyer and a trainer at the sales for the first time in Adelaide because when uh, I started training uh, it was a recession and we had no money at all. The recession started in the September quarter of 1990, just before Robbie ventured into unknown territory. During such, GDP fell by 1.8% employment by 3.4 and the unemployment rate rose to 10.8%. Like all recessions of its kind, this meant the society, as many were used to, was significantly disrupted and there was great economic hardship. And one of the reasons why uh, I started training is we were broke. I couldn't basically get out of the financial woes on a wage. Uh, Shrani would work two jobs or three jobs if she could fit them in and so could I, training and riding outside horses for other trainers and things like that. Because we didn't have any money, it was very scary to put your hand up and buy a, a yearling. So this filly I was really, really impressed with and she was by a young imported stand called Ptolemeo from Europe, from Ireland. And 
you wouldn't believe it, when she come into the ring to be uh, sold, they said there's six months terms. If anyone buys her, you can have six months to pay her off. And I thought, wow, how good's that? So, uh, better still. Anyway, the hammer went down and I purchased her for $10,000. I loved her and I got the opportunity to pay her off. So it was a win-win. So we bought her home and um, she was a beautiful filly and that's Bells of Tolling. But the process of purchasing Bells of Tolling at the Magic Million sales wasn't embarked alone by Robbie. In fact, he was helped by a man who would later become a close friend, confidant, owner, and a rich member of the Griffiths Racing Department up to this day, Don Healy. So we'd gone to Adelaide with Darling uh, Horse Tony Vassal trained and the person that strapped the horse that day was Brendan Healy and he was about the same age as us and he and his girlfriend Marty, we went out for dinner and uh, socialised a bit and when we got back was a few months later that we got an invite from Brendan to attend his 21st birthday at his parents' house in Essendon. So he was a Melbourne boy originally. And uh, it was there that we met Don and Wilma and the rest of the Healy family. Don Healy was at that stage an economist with a bookmaker's licence who adored horse racing. When asked about Bells of Telling, he had this to say. Uh, well, she was probably the first uh, yearling that Robbie bought and uh, we uh, were able to syndicate her with a group of people, um, one of whom was Gra the late Graham McGregor. Uh, and Graham then probably had, I don't know, 20 horses with us or shares in 20 horses with us until, until he passed away last year. As you can hear, Don's investment in the young couple was one laced with longevity and commitment. His want to organise syndicates and to get them confidently situated in the horse racing market was the fuel they needed to survive. He saw something in Robbie and Sharani, something the two of them didn't even see in themselves, and he followed his gut instinct. He's been an absolute godsend and he's been a father figure and a mentor and a best friend and uh, that anyone could ever have, it's incredible. 21 year old kid, he was a kid, he was only a, only a boy, they both were. Um, I think you, know, you, you just, you can relate to people who, uh, Robbie was always willing to give something a go and he was a terrific communicator, uh, he really was, and Shirani was just lovely. Horse racing is all about alliances and connections, great and small, brief and long-lasting. Which horse is the product of which sire or dam? Which race win ensures entry to the next one? Which old trainer has a son or daughter who's become immersed in the smell of leather and is itching to grab a tight hold of a pair of reins before the sun rises every morning of the week? Which apprentice jockey becomes a foreman to whom to become a trainer of what? It's a game of interrelation and hope. And it's a game Sharani and Robbie were hungry to be a part of. Their early success and connections allowed their stable to grow and grow some more. Next time on Under Starter's Orders, we meet some more stable favourites and step foot on the stables at Bellato Road, which would become home to Robbie, his family and a large group of four-legged legends for two exhilarating decades. If you're enjoying the story so far, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, leave a review and tell your friends and family. 
I'm your host, Craig Miles, and thanks for listening.